Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the DraftKings Q3 2020 earnings call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you need to press star 1 on your telephone. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to do sales for practice call Mr. Stanton Dodge. You may begin. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. Statements we make during this call that are not statements of historical fact constitute forward-looking statements that are subject to risks, uncertainties, and other factors that could cause our actual results to differ materially from our historical results or from our forecast. We assume no responsibility for updating forward-looking statements. For more information, please refer to the risks, uncertainties, and other factors discussed in our SEC filings. During the call, management will also discuss certain non-GAAP measures, which we believe may be useful in evaluating DraftKings operating performance. These measures should not be considered in isolation or as a substitute for DraftKings financial results prepared in accordance with GAAP. A reconciliation of these non-GAAP measures to the most directly comparable GAAP measures is available in our quarterly report on Form 10-Q filed today with the SEC and in our earnings presentation, which is available on our website at investors.draftkings.com. Hosting the call today, we have Jason Robbins, co-founder, chief executive officer, and chairman of DraftKings, who will share some opening remarks and an update on our business. And Jason Park, chief financial officer of DraftKings, We'll provide a review of our financials. We will then open up the line to questions. I will now turn the call over to DraftKings co-founder, chief executive officer, and chairman, Jason Robbins. Good morning, everyone. Before I begin my remarks, in recognition of Veterans Day this week, I would like to thank our country's veterans for their sacrifices and service. In order to more directly support our veterans and their families, DraftKings launched Tech for Heroes in 2018 a company-wide initiative that provides veterans and military spouses with free, comprehensive, high-tech job skills training and connects veterans to DraftKings employees who provide mentoring. Since launching the Tech for Heroes program, we have invested over a million dollars in providing free accredited training to veterans and their spouses across the country. I'm proud to announce that in 2021, we will be expanding the reach of our Tech for Heroes program and are committing to training approximately 250 veterans in 2021, double the number we trained this year. We want to give veterans and their spouses the tools they need to start a new career in tech or advance in their current position. Everyone at DraftKings is proud to do our part to thank veterans and their families for the sacrifices they make on our behalf. I would also like to thank our investors for their continued support and welcome those investors who joined us with our follow-on equity offering in October. On today's call, we will cover the following topics. First, I want to share some insight into our third quarter accomplishments. Next, I will provide an update on our recent state launches in the pipeline of new states. Third, I will discuss our product and technology investments as well as the migration to our in-house proprietary sports betting technology. Then, before turning it over to Jason Park, I will share some insights into our sales and marketing approach and our recent equity offering. DraftKings had a very productive third quarter on a number of different fronts. First, our Q3 performance confirms what we foreshadowed on our previous earnings call. The return on major sports has generated tremendous customer engagement. Third quarter revenue of $133 million was at the high end of the range we outlined in our recent S1 and grew 42% year over year. In Q3, we also had more than 1 million monthly unique payers, which means the average for the months of July, August, and September was greater than 1 million. Given the impact COVID had in July, monthly unique payers in August and September were higher than in July. We expect these positive trends to continue, as shown by the very encouraging outlook for the fourth quarter that our 2020 guidance suggests. As noted last quarter, there have been and may continue to be disruptions in the sports calendar due to COVID. We are optimistic that sports will continue to be played and believe any disruptions will be short-term in nature and not impact the long-term prospects of the sports gaming industry or our competitive positioning. Looking ahead to 2021, we are likely to see another unique sports calendar with the NBA and NHL expected to kick off their seasons either later this year or early next year as compared to their typical start dates in October. Second, we continue to build smart and effective relationships with media companies, including ESPN and Turner Sports, as well as with professional sports teams. 
including the Chicago Cubs, the New York Giants, and the Philadelphia Eagles. These commercial and strategic agreements provide us with access to unique and valuable content, intellectual property, and marketing assets, as well as highly relevant target audiences in markets where sports betting has recently been legalized. We evaluate these opportunities with the same data-driven approach we use to guide other areas of our business. We also strengthened our corporate foundation by appointing two new board members, Jocelyn Moore and Valerie Mosley, and we also added Michael Jordan to our team as a special advisor on our board. I am excited to welcome Jocelyn and Valerie to our board as they each bring unique skills, experiences, and ideas, and they will each play an important role in shaping the future of DraftKings and helping us achieve our long-term goals. Jocelyn's former roles, which include serving as Executive Vice President of Communications and Public Affairs for the National Football League, equip her with valuable insights into our customers, as well as with respect to government and regulatory affairs. Valerie's experience in the investment management industry, which includes 20 years plus at Wellington, provides us with an important voice on the capital markets front. The addition of Michael Jordan to the DraftKings team is also a great fit. Both Michael and DraftKings live and love to compete. Michael will provide input on a variety of dimensions, including a focus on brand strategy, product development, inclusion, equity, and belonging, marketing activities, and other key initiatives. Turning to new U.S. states for DraftKings and legalization trends, in the third quarter, we launched iGaming in West Virginia and sports betting in Illinois. Illinois, given its size and passionate sports fan base, is a large and important market. The state was a focus of our Q3 marketing efforts and a key reason for the increase in third quarter sales and marketing expense. The governor's suspension of the state's in-person registration requirement has enabled us to acquire players directly onto our mobile product. Our investments in technology, regulatory affairs, and compliance put us in a great position to market to customers and launch mobile registration quickly. We are pleased to have launched mobile sports betting in Tennessee on November 1st. We are excited about entering another state with passionate sports fans and highly competitive teams at both the collegiate and professional level. With our launch in Tennessee, DraftKings is now live in 10 states for mobile sports betting and live in three states for ID. As you also know, Virginia has legalized sports betting, and Michigan has legalized both sports betting and iGaming. Those two states account for approximately 6% of the U.S. population. We are working together with state officials in Virginia and Michigan on regulations and licensing and are hopeful that we will launch in each state at the earliest practicable opportunity. Last week, on Election Day, Maryland, South Dakota, and the majority of parishes in Louisiana passed referendums in favor of sports betting. These three states in total account for approximately 3.5% of the U.S. population. The margins approving the referendums were decisive, showing that public support for sports betting is strong, and we are hopeful that this will help the momentum continue across the U.S. As a reminder, launching in a new state is a multi-step process. Legislatures need to pass bills, regulations need to be written, and licenses need to be granted. Last week's votes were certainly a good first step, though it is probable that these states will not have a material impact on our financials in 2021 and may not even launch until 2022. In addition, Ontario's government recently presented its annual budget, which included language that would modify the longstanding statutory Internet gaming framework to allow private operators offering sports betting and iGaming products to operate in the province. This is exciting because Ontario is a large market for us. If it were a U.S. state, it would rank as fifth largest state by population, and we have offered our DFS product in Canada since 2012. We are now two and a half years in since PASPA was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. 21 states representing about 40% of the population of legalized sports betting. 14 states representing 26% of the population of legalized mobile sports betting. 12 of which representing 21% of the population currently have operators live. DraftKings is now live with mobile sports betting in 10 of those states, which is more than any other operator. These 10 states collectively represent about 20% of the U.S. population. We continue to be very excited with the product and technology investments we are making, as well as with our progress on the technology migration and business integration of SB Tech. We anticipate completing the technology migration by the third quarter of 2021. And once we do so, our vertically integrated proprietary sports betting technology will create a sustainable and differentiated advantage for DraftKings. We also expect to benefit from a long-term improvement in our gross margin percentage once the migration is complete. As a reminder, with the acquisition of SB Tech, we now have almost 1,100 engineers worldwide dedicated to creating best-in-class technology and games and experiences for our users.
During the third quarter, we launched our standalone casino app for iGaming in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. We also launched Best Ball, which is our first season-long product for DFS. In addition, we introduced several new DraftKings-created games for online casino, including new versions of Blackjack, Roulette, and Baccarat. Beyond our customer-facing investments, we continue to prioritize our internal capabilities around data science, which drive our cross-sell and LTV to cash metrics. With our technology, talent, and resources, as well as with our proprietary betting engine, we will be able to clearly differentiate our offering in the United States from any other gaming provider and create a sustainable advantage for DraftKings, both as a B2C and B2B company. Regarding B2B, we continue to obtain new business in international markets. In October, we announced the launch of PalaceBet, a mobile and online sportsbook powered by DraftKings B2B technology through our relationship with Piermont in South Africa. We also announced the renewal and extension of our relationship with Mansion Bet, the Gibraltar-based sports betting brand of Mansion Group, which is a leading provider of online gaming with a portfolio of well-known online casino brands and a sportsbook. In the third quarter, we saw a significant increase in customer activity, as evidenced by our 64% year-over-year increase in MUPS for the quarter. On average, more than a million monthly unique-paying customers engage with DraftKings each month during Q3. A number of the factors we have discussed, including the unique Q3 sports calendar, pent-up demand, the earlier-than-expected mobile registration opportunity in Illinois, and the stay-at-home nature of COVID have made this a unique and valuable time for customer acquisition, and our CAC came in better than our expectations. We have confidence that our CAC levels are appropriate given our insight into our customers and revenue retention, which are the bedrock of our LTV calculation. Our sales and marketing approach is data-driven. We base our decisions on the return on ad spend we are seeing, not on what our competitors are doing, and leverage our data to optimize customer acquisition spending based on player profiles and preferences. This approach means that we will spend more if the data indicates that we should, as was the case in Q3. We will take the same data-driven approach always to our commercial and strategic agreements. For example, states with sports betting and iGaming generate higher customer LTVs, which informed our agreement with the Philadelphia Eagles. In our agreement with the Chicago Cubs, we considered the value associated with the potential to open a world-class drafting sportsbook at Wrigley Field. Our agreements with sports media organizations like ESPN and Turner allow us to integrate our content into programming and collaborate on new content, which we believe will improve our overall marketing performance while advancing mainstream adoption of sports betting. Finally, our relationship with Bryson DeChambeau, the world's sixth-ranked golfer and 2020 U.S. Open champion underscores the significance of golf within the gaming industry. Golf remains DraftKings' fourth most popular daily fantasy sport, while our golf sportsbook handle has grown over 10 times year over year. I would also like to talk about our recent equity offering, which is the second one we've completed since going public, including the rationale behind it and how I see things going forward. We conducted the October offering for two primary reasons. First, the process we are going through is part of the reality of transitioning from a VC-backed company to a publicly traded company. It is only natural for early private investors to exit their investment and realize a return for their investors. The offering allowed us to smooth this process out by facilitating an organized and orderly process in anticipation of the lockup restrictions on many shareholders that were set to come up on October 20th. In fact, now 80% of our common shares are unlocked at this point and all of our shares will be unlocked at the beginning of January, after January 5th. We have provided more specific information regarding the unlocking of our shares in the earnings presentation, which can be found on our investor website. Secondly, DraftKings has always been proactive with ensuring we are well-financed to pursue our growth objectives. We see a number of attractive avenues to deploy the capital we raise in ways that will create long-term value for our shareholders. This may include continued investment in customer acquisition, especially while the CAC remains very efficient, as well as positioning the business for the hopeful acceleration of state legalization. In addition, while we have no specific M&A targets at this time, we are always considering companies that may help us fuel our growth and bring more excitement to the skin in the game fan. As I look to the future, I am very confident in the continued growth of the online sports betting and iGaming market in the U.S. Though not a proxy for revenue, the handle growth figures we disclosed in our S1 support our OSB and iGaming TAN estimates, as do the number of new users we are adding and the data that the states are reporting. DraftKings is well-positioned to capitalize on the U.S. market growth as we extend our leadership position with live operations in more states than any competitor.
I will now turn the call over to DraftKings CFO, Jason Park, who will discuss our third quarter results and how we are currently thinking about the rest of 2020 and 2021. Thank you, Jason, and good morning, everyone. Before I begin, I want to remind everyone that we will be discussing our results on a combined company pro forma basis to improve comparability, as if the business combination had closed on January 1, 2019. Pro forma means that we are including B2B for the nine months ended September 30th for both 2019 and 2020, rather than just from April 24th through September 30th in 2020. In Q3 2020, we delivered $133 million of revenue, a 42% year-over-year increase. These results were fantastic and would have been roughly $15 million stronger were it not for the unusually low hold for NFL games during the first three weeks of the season. On a year-to-date basis, we have generated $321 million of pro forma revenue, representing 19% year-over-year growth, which obviously includes several months that were deeply impacted by COVID. Our B2C segment, which represents our U.S. product offerings of daily fantasy sports, sportsbook, and iGaming, generated $104 million of revenue in Q3, up 55% compared to the same period in 2019. We launched iGaming in West Virginia and online sports betting in Illinois during the third quarter, and we were live in seven new states for NFL Week 1 versus Q3 2019. These factors combined with the packed sports calendar were the major drivers of our growth. On a year-to-date basis, our B2C segment has grown 29%. B2C monthly unique payers in the quarter increased 64% year-over-year to $1.02 million. The increase reflects strong unique payer retention and acquisition across DFS, OSB, and iGaming. On a year-to-date basis, MUPS have increased 20%. MUPS also grew at an impressive year-over-year rate in October as we continue to realize the positive impact of our external marketing spend. Average revenue per monthly unique payer, or ARP MUP, was $34 in Q3, representing a 6% decrease versus the same period in 2019. Our ARPMUP was impacted by the aforementioned low NFL hold and promotional activity, offset by increased engagement with our iGaming and online sportsbook product offerings. On a year-to-date basis, ARPMUP has increased 7% versus 2019. Turning to our B2B results, our B2B business generated $29 million of revenue in the quarter, a very solid 11% growth rate compared to the same period in 2019. Adjusted EBITDA for the quarter widened to negative $197 million as we rolled out our new state playbook in multiple jurisdictions and continued to invest in our product technology and GNA functions. Gross margin rate for the business declined as we shifted our business away from higher margin DFS as well as increased promotional activity. Gap gross margin rate declined more due to the amortization of acquired intangibles related to the business combination. Our sales and marketing spend was $203 million on a gap basis and $191 million after excluding stock-based compensation and depreciation and amortization. The year-over-year increase in marketing investment had a positive impact, as you can see from the increase in our MUPs. The majority of the $191 million in Q3 sales and marketing spend was for external marketing. The primary driver for our year-over-year increase in external marketing is that we had seven states where we were live for the first time for NFL Week 1, including Illinois. In addition, the pent-up demand and unique sports calendar combined for strong engagement and return on advertising spend. Product and technology and general and administrative expenses were $54 million and $127 million on a gap basis, respectively, and $31 million and $36 million, respectively, after excluding stock-based compensation transaction expenses, and other non-cash and non-recurring charges. The year-over-year growth in these cost categories was primarily from headcount increases, including the annualization of hires we made in 2019. Moving on to our balance sheet and liquidity, we are well capitalized to execute our multi-year plan and address our key priorities of taking advantage of this unique time for customer acquisition, entering new states as they legalize, continuing to lead the market on product innovation, and exploring opportunistic and accretive M&A. We ended the third quarter with $1.1 billion of cash on our balance sheet and no debt, taking into account our follow-on equity offering in October, as well as a $295 million use of cash 
to net settle restricted stock units, we expect our cash balance to be approximately $1.7 billion at year-end. Regarding the net share settlement, the RSUs that vested on October 20th resulted in a requirement for the company to withhold taxes. The company held back shares to satisfy the withholding obligation, delivered only the net shares to the participants, and paid the taxes. As a result, we reduced our diluted share count by about 2%. I want to reiterate that no shares of Class A common stock were transferred or sold by our officers in connection with the vesting of these RSUs or the October offering, other than the shares withheld by the company, which are reported as a disposition of shares. Having now generated $321 million of pro forma revenue in the first nine months of 2020, we are increasing our guidance from 500 to 540 million to 540 to 560 million of pro forma revenue for the full year, which equates to year-over-year growth of 25% to 30%. This increase reflects strong performance in October and substantial user activation due largely to our Q3 marketing spend. We assume that all sports calendars will continue as announced and that we continue to operate in states in which we are live today. The range also assumes that the governor of Illinois does not extend the suspension of the in-person registration requirement. Future revenues and marketing spend will be higher for each month Illinois chooses to extend the suspension. In terms of MUPs and ARP MUP, we expect MUP growth for the full year 2020 to exceed 2019's growth rate, while ARP MUP growth for 2020 is expected to be below 2019's growth rate but slightly higher than our year-to-date growth rate. Turning to pro forma adjusted EBITDA, we are continuing to invest in marketing given the strong marketing spend efficacy we are seeing, as well as our investment in the launch of sports betting in Tennessee. As a result, we expect our adjusted EBITDA loss in Q4 to be a little more than half of the loss recorded in Q3, again, based on the states in which we are live today. As a reminder, our marketing spend is highly flexible and can be reduced or paused altogether if the sport calendar shifts. In the future, we expect to provide full-year guidance only once annually on our year-end call. However, since we provided a 2021 revenue outlook of $700 million during the DSPAC process, and because we are seeing strong results from recent marketing investments, we want to provide an update on our 2021 revenue outlook on this call. Though we are still in the process of finalizing our 2021 plans, we believe that our 2021 revenues will likely be in the range of $750 million to $850 million. This range is based on the same assumptions we use for our 2020 guidance, in particular that all professional and college sports calendars that have been announced come to fruition, including the commencement of their 2020 to 2021 seasons, and that we continue to operate in states in which we are live today which collectively represent 20% of the U.S. population for mobile sports betting and 7% of the U.S. population for iGaming. We will continue to refine and update our internal budgets as we move through Q4, and we'll issue formal 2021 revenue guidance on our Q4 and full-year earnings call. That concludes our remarks, and we will now open the lineup for questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question or a comment at this time, please press the star, then the one key on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Our first question comes from Michael Brand with Canaboard. Hey, thanks so much for the question and, uh, and um, impressive numbers. Can you just please talk about your um, 2021 guidance for a second, um, and thanks for giving us that, and just you know, maybe at a high level, you know, talk about the relative contribution from, from MUPS and ARP MUPS. And then, Jason, did you say um, that that only includes states where you're live today? So should we expect that, you know, as you can add more states, potentially that could, you know, drift higher? Thanks uh, for the great question. So, um, yes, this only includes we, – we have continued to follow philosophy of only including states where we are either live or have a certain launch date. Um, and while we are hopeful that we will be able to add states like Michigan and Virginia next year, we don't know yet. So that's not, not included. Uh, those states are not included in those numbers. Um, you know, the results were really, uh, you know, driven by – or excuse me, the increased guidance is really driven by the results we, we've seen in the last quarter. 
um, particularly on the customer acquisition side, which is going to give us more revenue and, um, you know, hopefully continue to have more uh, MUPS as well into next year. Okay, thanks a lot. Our next question comes from Vince Hussain with Credit Suisse. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for taking my question. Um, Ontario seems like a great opportunity. I don't know if you have any color um, on steps or timing, and then with, with regard to OSB versus iGaming, um, not sure if either segment has momentum or if it's an all-or-nothing dynamic. So uh, Ontario, for those who are not familiar, um, added to their budget uh, a, a basically allowance for private operators to offer both sports betting and iGaming in the province. Ontario previously had only had a, uh, you know, single operator, the province uh, lottery that was operating sportsbook and iGaming, um, although, uh, you know, some have been operating in the gray there for quite some time as well. Um, Ontario is, you know, a very large province. It's Canada's largest province. If it were a U.S. state, it would be a top five state. DraftKings has been present in Canada, including, of course, Ontario, um, for almost a decade now. So we have a very nice-sized user base there, and we think it could be a really great opportunity. As far as timing, you know, I think similar to some of the other processes you see with U.S. states, it's always not, you know, not always very clear exactly what the timing or process will be. Um, but we think it was a great step to see Ontario uh, put forth what they did, and, you know, we're very hopeful that we'll be able to have both sports betting and iGaming in Ontario sometime next year. Gotcha. And just a, just a quick one. Is that something you anticipate needing a partner, like most states in the U.S., or is this going to be more similar to maybe how Tennessee is structured or the U.K.? The indications we've been given is it will be a direct license. Um, obviously, anything could change, but that's uh, what we've been so far uh, told. So that's our expectation that we'd be able to, like Tennessee, obtain our own license. Gotcha. I appreciate it. Thanks. I will say, though, that a lot um, has been left to the regulator. It was a very, you know, sort of brief, um, you know, change in terms of the budget and the law. Um, so a lot is still left up to the discretion of the regulator, including questions like that. Gotcha. The next question comes from Chad Bainon with McCrary. Good morning. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, from a product standpoint on your uh, sports wagers in the quarter, can you kind of help us think about what you learned about your database, uh, meaning uh, are your customers skewing more towards football than, than what you were originally thinking just because of the DFS, or were there any surprises just in terms of kind of how the, the proportions split out with different sports? Thanks. Great question. You know, one of the challenges in uh, even answering that is the sports schedule itself has been so strange this year. So, you know, looking at things like year-over-year comparisons or even comparing sport to sport has been challenging, um, you know, to, to draw conclusions from. Uh, from what we can see, the balance of sports is, is quite similar to what we've seen in the past um, and uh, less in sports betting skewed towards NFL than in daily fantasy sports. However, NFL is definitely the largest sport, both in daily fantasy sports and sports betting. Uh, it's just the gap is a little bit smaller, um, you know, in part because things like college sports make up a little bit more of the room on sports betting, and, you know, they're not as popular on the daily fantasy sports side. But really tough to tell if anything's kind of changed this year as more states have done sports betting. From what we can tell, it hasn't, but, you know, that's with the caveat that, uh, you know, typically when we look at things, we look at year-over-year comparisons to control for seasonality, and uh, that obviously was not very possible this year. Okay, great. And then um, can you elaborate a little bit more on the ESPN Sportsbook link out, the timing of that, and, and when the full integration uh, will be in place? Yeah, we're very excited about that. We have a uh, you know, great relationship with ESPN. Disney continues to be one of our largest shareholders. Um, so, you know, we think there's a great long-term relationship that we hope to build upon there. As far as timing of any individual features, we, we plan to announce anything that we do want to announce, you know, in sort of our normal course uh, as, as things roll out. Um, so we don't have at this time anything that we're publicly saying about timing of any sort of direct integrations or other things. But, um, you know, teams are working very hard on it, so we, we hopefully will start to see uh, some of those things very soon. Thank you, Jason. Best of luck. Thank you. Our next question comes from Kevin Rippey with Sanford Core ISI. 
Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for taking the question. I just had one on sort of marketing spend and the efficiencies you're seeing there. Looks like, you know, marketing spend per, per MUP edition came down quite a bit. How, I'm wondering if you could help us parse out how much of that comes by way of pent-up demand, uh, given the, the unique sports calendar, and how much of it is coming by way of, you know, internal efficiencies that, that you're driving. Thanks. That's a great question. Um, you know, that, that is a million-dollar question that I don't know I, that I do have an answer for you. It's hard to quantify how much pent-up demand is driving increased response, how much the stay-at-home nature of COVID is driving increased response, how much the overlap in sports calendar is affecting things. All those are new data points for us, um, so very tough to compare to other periods. Overall, we are seeing great performance. The efficiency, um, the CAC is actually better than what we expected, and we were able to spend deeper at a lower CAC. Um, so while, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly how much is, uh, you know, a sort of relic, uh, or not a relic, but a, a function of the current environment versus, you know, just better uh, optimization, while that's tough to tell, um, we do know it's better, and I'm certain it's some combination of the two, just hard to kind of parse apart how much of each. But the team is always optimizing the marketing, so I would always expect uh, continued improvement. And then also, um, you know, we're getting close. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting close to that 30-plus percent level of, uh, you know, population having uh, – of the U.S. population having sports betting, which then will allow those national marketing efficiencies to start to kick in. And I think that's part of why you're seeing us start to do some of these more national media deals. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephen Grambling with Goldman Sachs. Hey, this is uh, this is Stephen Grambling. Um, I guess one just just following up on on the ESPN deal, and, and maybe I missed this, but are, are there any potential implications as you think about the impact to customer acquisition costs? And then also, um, if you can just touch on more broadly how you think about content and media as a future area of growth. Uh, so, you know, our expectation when we do any strategic deal is that it will have a positive effect on our customer acquisition costs. And, you know, the true win-win is when you're able to actually spend more at better efficiencies that benefits both the media company that's, you know, on the other side of the deal as well as us. And I think the ESPN deal is a perfect example of that where they're allowing us access to inventory like linkouts and integrations that normally you can't buy on the open market. Uh, and those are very high-performing from past experience that we've had in similar deals, as well as deals we've done on the Daily Fantasy side with ESPN in the past. So we have a high degree of confidence that this is a win-win deal that should improve our customer acquisition efficiency over time. And, um, you know, certainly we're excited about partnering with ESPN as well as, you know, other great media partners like Turner that we've formed relationships with over the last quarter. Great. Maybe one quick follow-up on, on marketing and promotions. Can you just remind us of where you're kind of targeting the win rate, and does your flexible marketing approach try to manage around that? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question one more time? It's, it's a question on marketing and promotions and, and where you kind of target win rate, um, and does your flexible marketing and promotion approach effectively enable you to manage around that? So should we be generally thinking that the win rate, if it's higher, you know, you maybe you promote a little more, and, and if it's lower, promote a little bit less? You know, it's a great question. I think, in effect, it sort of works that way. It's not exactly how we manage it. We look at promotions much like uh, external marketing based on, you know, an LTV analysis and the cost on the other side, and we look at whether we think that, you know, whatever value we're generating on an MPV basis exceeds whatever cost the promotion has, and, you know, that's applied very similarly, like our external media to new customer promotions, as well as promotions designed to reactivate or generate new sport play and things like that. Um, I think the effect, though, just, you know, practically is, is similar probably to what you're saying, because promotions will certainly work better uh, in times where, you know, maybe the company is holding more and players are seeing, you know, less wins come forth versus in times where they're winning a lot. Um, but that's not really the, the driving force behind how we manage it. Um, that's just more of kind of a, a correlated output. That's helpful. Thanks so much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jet Kelly with Oppenheimer. Hey, uh, great. Thanks for taking my question. Just a couple. Um can you sort of share how October is trending right now relative to your overall guidance? And then just with Illinois, 
Um, you immediately launched there. You, you put some promotions. Is that state now starting to move the needle revenue-wise, or, or is it still not as much with, with some of the promotions? And then I have a follow-up. Um, so the first question, sorry, t- t- I got Illinois. What was the first question again? Just how is October how is October trending relative to your rel- overall 4Q guidance? You know, I don't uh, – we haven't really said much about uh, October, but as you see, uh, we raised our Q4 guidance. So, um, you know, prior to uh, today, we had been guiding to a midpoint that would represent 22% year-over-year growth. We are now guiding to a midpoint that would represent 40% year-over-year growth. So fairly substantial increase to the Q4 guidance. So without commenting specifically on October, um, you know, I could tell you we feel very good about the way Q4 is trending. And as far as Illinois goes, um, Illinois has now become our second largest state by handle behind New Jersey. It's also our fastest growing state. Uh, so we're pretty excited about it. I think you'll start to see some contribution on the revenue side in Q4, usually the first couple months uh, of a, a new state launch. We don't see a whole lot of contribution on the revenue side. Um, Tennessee is a great example of that where, you know, we just launched Tennessee, but we don't actually expect it to have a ton of any impact on revenue this year. Illinois, I think, will start to have some impact on Q4, and that is part of why we think that we're, uh, you know, going to be better than where we thought we were previously uh, in Q4 this year. Great. And then just a longer-term question for you, Jason. Um, you know, you mentioned product development, um, your integration with SB Tech. As we kind of get into next year, what, what do you think is ultimately going to drive the customer stickiness in, in this industry? Is it going to be more product development where you can actually generate or drive product differentiation among live betting, or is it going to be more CRM management where you know how to manage the customer, provide them bonuses? Just how, how do you see, you know, long-term stickiness with the consumer? Well, you know, we definitely try to have best-in-class product and CRM programs. Um, We have a great data science team, and uh, a lot of what we do is model-driven. But I think if you want to kind of simplify it, we believe that promotions drive trial and activation. Product drives long-term stickiness and, and, uh, you know, monetization. And, um, you know, I think really we feel that it's also a stage of the industry thing. We are just starting. Uh, haven't even, you know, migrated yet. We are just starting to um, put the investments behind building out the best live betting and, um, you know, new forms of teasers, profits, other things uh, that you're going to see us develop in the coming years. And so um, I also think as the industry progresses and we have more time and uh, more energy that we'll have been able to put behind that, we feel we'll be able to put more and more distance between our product and customer experience and, you know, what else is out there. And I think that will um, increase the effect of that on stickiness over time. Uh, right now, it's very much, you know, so many new states opening up. It's customer acquisition mode for everybody, and that's an important part of it, too. But, you know, people, we believe, will ultimately stick with the best experience, and that's what we're working hard to build. Thank you. Our next question comes from Thomas Allen with Morgan Stanley. Hey, good morning. Um, there's a lot of investor focus on gross and net win margins and concerns that they'll be impaired long-term because of how competitive the market is right now. Can you discuss your thoughts on the topic? Thanks. Uh, I mean, we're, you know, two years into the industry. Uh, just to put in perspective, we had exactly two states, New Jersey and West Virginia, live at the start of the last NFL season. We're in 10 states now. Um, so, you know, I think the long-term uh, margins and other aspects of the industry are going to shake out over time. And, you know, we saw this in DFS, so it doesn't surprise me that those questions are coming up in the early days of daily fantasy sports. We ran at much lower margins than what we did longer term, and it ended up, you know, once we moved to more of the, um, you know, harvesting stage, pretty quick, being you know, a pretty easy change. Um, and then the last point I make is the margins are actually pretty good right now. Even when you factor in a lot of the promotional activity and free bet, you know, that all comes out of our net revenue. And net revenue is up significantly, 42% in Q3. We're guiding to 40% growth in Q4, 45% growth next year. Um, so, you know, if there is any upside on the margin, it should be, you know, on top of what is already a very healthy growing net revenue number. 
Thanks. And just a follow-up on a similar topic. Um, you know, where are you in terms of profitability in the more mature markets? You know, we are planning. So, you know, more mature markets are really New Jersey and West Virginia. Um, you know, those were the only <laughs> two that we were even present in last year at the start of NFL. So, um, you know, we have in the past provided some projections, multi-year projections on New Jersey. Obviously, COVID threw things for a loop, but, um, you know, we actually think we're pretty similar spot to where we had hoped to be. That said, we still have, you know, another month and a half of the year. So what we're planning to do is in our next earnings call um, in, in Q1, uh, we will provide an update on New Jersey specifically, and we'll talk about how that's tracking versus what we have previously talked about. Helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Sean Kelly with Bank of America. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Um, Jason, just to follow up on that uh, last question um, about the, the promotional piece, because, you know, I just – should we think about modeling this a lot like, you know, the way the, the, the cadence of the way that external marketing spend works? So obviously as you're in the early phases of launch, um, you know, those, those numbers are going to accelerate a lot, uh, or, you know, and then, it, and then it comes down over time. Or will the promotional piece, and again, I'm really thinking about this net versus gross, will, will that actually come down faster um, just given that it really applies more to sort of initial bonusing and, like you said, activation? I think that's a really, uh, I wish I'd thought of that. That's a great way to describe it. It's very correlated to the acquisition. Certainly some promotions are aimed at activation or getting people to try new sports or new products, but the bulk of the promotional dollars are aimed at acquisition. So as acquisition in any given state becomes less of a focus, and um, even if we do continue to spend there, just as, you know, kind of we build our, our user base naturally, uh, new customers will be a smaller percentage of the total user base. Absolutely would expect promotional dollars to follow a similar trend. Um, and it's really, as you kind of alluded to, a new repeat mix thing that's driving it. It's not us deliberately doing anything differently. Um, you know, obviously, if we see things in the data that suggest something's not working or working, we'll, we'll alter. But, um, you know, even if that doesn't happen, just the simple shift between, uh, you know, new customers being a very high percentage of our current actives and, you know, eventually repeat being the much higher percentage for new sportsbook states, uh, that'll, that'll obviously change the promotional dollars as well as the external marketing spend. Very helpful. And then just as a follow-up, um, you know, in some of these more mature markets, and really it's pretty much probably a case study around New Jersey, um, are, are you seeing any change in retention rates one direction or another? You know, how is this all kind of um, – you know, how is the cohort, you know, trend, you know, uh, like like working relative to the some of the guidance um, and initial uh, things that you laid out, you know, let's call it uh, back back in March and April? We're seeing positive news on retention across the board. Um, virtually every state that we were present in last year, again, with the caveat that it was a small number, um, you know, for Sportsbook, we're seeing growth. Uh, New Jersey is way up year over year, even just um, – you know, the Masters, uh, which yesterday started, New Jersey had a 181% increase in handle year over year for the Masters. So really tremendous growth in uh, existing states, and retention has been strong. Uh, some of that might be due to, you know, COVID and people staying home and so many sports on the calendar. But, uh, you know, a lot of it, I think, is also due to us having optimized for, you know, having another year to have optimized our CRM efforts. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from Vasily Karasov with Cannonball Research. Thank you. Good morning. Um, so back uh, early this year at the analyst day, um, you argued that a good proxy for us to model uh, states that are, you are rolling out in is New Jersey and that uh, the revenue and uh, um, in, gross profit and marketing spend indexed to 1% of the population uh, should be more or less similar. So I was wondering if you could give us an update of if that is holding true right now in the um, in the states um, in, for comparable period uh, compared to comparable period in New Jersey and uh, if it's still a good assumption on average going forward and if not, whether it's, you think, driven by the sports calendar or it's just something... Uh, systemic there. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned the sports calendar. It's hard to compare this year. This has been such an unusual year. 
Um, you know, and we had only two states, New Jersey and West Virginia, live at the start of last NFL. So most of, of the data we have is from a COVID-impacted 2020 um, and really tough, uh, I think. You know, there's a difference, obviously, in New Jersey in that it had iGaming. So some of the states that had sports betting only that fell off a cliff in Q2, um, you know, very different story in New Jersey where iGaming was still there to carry a lot of the weight uh, during that period. Um, so very hard to compare. We are planning, if we can, and um, we're certainly working hard analytically to do so, to have uh, a more definitive viewpoint on that at our next analyst day, which will be um, in Q1 of, of next year. Um, so hopefully we'll have enough data and enough things sort of back to, you know, uh, I guess normal as far as you can call anything normal uh, to be able to do that. But right now we don't feel that we have enough data to really be able to compare state to state effectively, and we don't want to put anything out there that we're not, you know, very confident. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from Brad Erickson with Leader and Company. All right, thanks. Uh, can you just talk about the relative profitability levels you expect between sports betting and iGaming uh, and if they're different? And then I guess just philosophically, when you're looking at your P&L for iGaming next to sports betting in a particular state, you run them together more or less given the cross-sell synergies that, that they can drive. So you worry kind of less about one or the other being more profitable or are they just looked at separately? Just maybe talk about your philosophy on that. We look at everything together. So, um, you know, we view it as we have a platform, the user has an account and a wallet, and we want to maximize the amount of uh, value that we can generate over the lifetime of that user. And we direct the team to do that in whatever way the data is suggesting is going to accomplish that goal. So. Um, in doing so, you know, we don't really view product-level uh, economics as something that's relevant to how we analyze. There are some things, you know, that you can attribute directly to a particular product, but a lot of things like promotion dollars, marketing spend, um, you know, things like that are very hard to attribute to a particular product, and we don't want to unnecessarily, you know, and falsely attribute it to one or the other. And, make something, you know, look misleading or different that really isn't at all representative uh, at all representative of how we think about it internally. If you take only the things that you can directly attribute to sports betting and iGaming and take some of those other things out, the products actually have almost identical margins. Um, you know, I think there could be some evidence growing that iGaming might be a larger TAM ultimately, but uh, I don't think aside from that there will be a difference in profitability, at least in the things that you can directly, you know, attribute to each product, which, of course, is not the entire P&L. Got it. That, that's really helpful. And then maybe just a follow-up if I can. Recognize most sports betting and iGaming are huge contributors to the growth right now. Uh, can you just talk about uh, DFS and just what the growth trajectory looks like there and, and sort of any – any sort of help on magnitudes we're seeing both in the results as well as the outlook for, for DFS growth. Thanks. Yeah, DFS has had a great year. Uh, obviously, you know, COVID uh, impacted the sports calendar. So Q2, um, you know, we didn't see as much DFS activity as we typically do, but it really came roaring back in Q3, uh, in particular, you know, the August and September timeframes after NBA, NHL, and of course, eventually college uh, football and, and, and professional football became live. Um, just as an example, the Masters was up way year, uh, way up year over year for DFS. And right now, you know, it's new. The team is trying to kind of parse apart how much of that is true growth and how much of that is, you know, the Masters came on a different uh, in a different part of the calendar this year. And oftentimes, what we see is when we have more activity, everything goes up. Um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people had asked us, uh, not to deviate from your question, but it's related. A lot of people had asked us, you know, hey, do you expect iGaming just really grew in Q2 because there were, weren't a lot of sports, and is it going to go down in Q3? And it's actually been the opposite because we've had more activity on the platform, and that just lifts everything. Um, so DFS, I think, similarly, when you have so much sporting event overlap, like the Masters, for example, and, you know, the part of the NFL season, um, I'm not surprised we saw growth. So the team's working now to try to parse apart how much of that is natural growth that we, you know, uh, feel will continue into future years and how much of it is, you know, really a, a function of just a very unique sports calendar this year. That's great. Thanks. Our next question comes from David Jeffries. 
Uh, hi, good morning, um, and thank you. Um, I, I wanted to ask about in-game wagering uh, in, in sports, and, um, you know, I, I hope you can accept the sports references, but what inning would you say that, that we're in, you know, one in terms of educating your customer base and in terms of the breadth of offering, you know, that you, you're at today and, and where you expect to be, and are there any, any particularly interesting learnings so far, you know, with the NFL season? today. Well, I continue with your sports analogy, your baseball analogy. I think we're in spring training. I don't think right. we're even in the first inning yet. It is super early. We have not even rolled out um, a lot of what we are, you know, developing on our own platform because we haven't migrated over to, uh, you know, our owned and operated uh, platform yet. So um, there's a lot. It's going to take years to build. And then, you know, it'll obviously uh, also be alongside just the customers naturally you know, finding in-game bet. The two things will work in, you know, together, where as the product offering improves, more customers will adopt it. But I think even if you just froze the product offering as is, you'd see more adoption over time as well. So both those things we think will, you know, have a very positive effect on each other and create a flywheel that will uh, increase adoption of in-game betting at a rapid pace once we're able to migrate over to our own platform. And if you don't mind, I'd like to follow that up, which, you know, which is, do you expect or do you have any intelligence about um, the degree to which that, you know, brings new players in or expands wallets on existing players or, you know, some combination thereof? Just, you know, I, I, I guess prevent me from getting carried away, prevent us from getting carried away as to, you know, how big, you know, how it ultimately could be. You know, I think it'll have a combination. You'll see a combination of both of those things, and there's other parts of the ecosystem that'll affect that too. Um, you know, our hope is that the sports leagues become increasingly comfortable with integrating fun little prop bets and in-game bets into their actual sports broadcasts. And you know, I think the more things like that you see, the ESPN effect that makes these things mainstream. Um, you know, the more adoption that you'll see and the more it'll have an effect on new customers. I'm very confident that it's an increased, uh, you know, retention and monetization play. And I think that, you know, it can have an impact on new customers as well. But a lot of that will depend on, you know, to what degree the rest of the ecosystem evolves alongside and, you know, how quickly that happens. Understood. Thanks very much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Mike Hickney with Vegbar Company. Hey, good morning, Jason. Jason, Joe, congrats uh, on your quarter, guys. Uh, awesome, uh, great guy too. The, uh, uh, just, I guess, you could, I was just curious if you could, I guess, pull back a layer on uh, Tennessee. They had a sort of a rather barbaric ten percent hold uh, mandate within their uh, regulatory uh, constructs. I'm just curious if you know, how that, that sort of shapes your success or not in that market and sort of moving over uh, players uh, from the black market. I'm guessing you have some some workarounds there. And then related, when you look at uh, Michigan and Virginia and you get a sense of, uh, you know, their regulatory construct, how much cleaner is that uh, for players and operators and what you've seen in Tennessee? And then I have a follow-up. Thanks. Yeah, you know, Tennessee will be an interesting one because, you know, I think our ingoing belief is that, uh, you know, by having, um, you know, higher mandated hold percentage, it will be harder, as you noted, to compete with the illegal market, and we might not see as much adoption, therefore, and we factor that into our numbers next year. We are assuming Tennessee, for that reason, doesn't perform uh, as well as it otherwise would have, um, you know, as a comparison to states that don't have that. That said, it could go the other way. It could be because, you know, there is an increased hold percentage. It could be that that's, you know, enough to offset whatever drop you see in adoption and migration from the illegal market. And we just don't know. Um, so it'll be an interesting experiment. And, uh, you know, like I said, our ingoing view is that it will have a negative effect, and that's why we've assumed that in uh, our numbers for next year. Um, but, you know, could go the other way, and we'll have to see. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the interesting aspects of this industry is it's going state by state. Different states are going to try different models. They're going to have different mixes of products. And, you know, our belief is that that will lead to, you know, much faster um, and much more obvious determination of what the optimal model is, and it will lead to other states kind of, you know, gravitating in that direction. And 
Um, you know, certainly I think Virginia and Michigan are more uh, approaching it the way that, you know, other states across the U.S. have done. Um, but I'm actually kind of excited that Tennessee is, uh, you know, we, we love to test here. We love data. Um, so, you know, it's a, an opportunity that we have to see how a different model could work and use that to inform, you know, what we think is appropriate going forward. Nice. The uh, second one for me, uh, just an update, if you would, maybe on the uh, SB Tech integration. I think you launched the app, uh, your app in Ireland, uh, in combination with uh, SB Tech as sort of a test market, if I remember that uh, correctly. Curious sort of how, how that's unfolding for you. And uh, I know your deal with Candy, I think, is uh, the third quarter, uh, 21, but when you look at uh, new markets, uh, coming live here, hopefully early 21, Michigan, Virginia. Uh, are you sort of at the moment now where you think you could launch in those uh, markets with SB Tech versus Canby? Uh, so everything is on track. We have uh, previously said that we believe we will uh, migrate in the second half of next year. And um, as you noted, our Canby contract goes through end of September. So uh, as of now, um, you know, we are we are still feeling good about committing to that timeline. Um, there might be an opportunity to accelerate it, and we'd certainly look at that. And, you know, that's been kind of leading to your question on Michigan and Virginia. It really depends on the timing of those. If they launch early next year as expected, I would expect that we will utilize Canby. Um, if they launch much later in the year, then it might be uh, that we, we, we go on the uh, platform that we now own and operate, the SB Tech platform. Um, so we'll just have to see what the timing is on that, but we do feel like we continue to be on track for our migration commitments of second half of next year, and we feel very good about either being able to meet that or exceed that expectation. Nice. Thanks, guys. Our last question comes from Carlos Santorelli with Deutsche Bank. Uh, hey, guys. It, uh, acknowledging there's a lot of ambiguity in, in the outlook, but the, the 750 to $850 million revenue guidance, could you guys talk a little bit about kind of what, what defines the, the end post of that guidance and, and kind of what are some of the key things that, that would put you towards the high end and or to, uh, towards the lower end, acknowledging that, that you know, states like Michigan and Virginia are not in there at this point? Yeah, so you, you, you hit on an important point. It is not, uh, you know, any assumption around any new states. That's all upside. So, um, you know, that isn't it. I think it's just, you know, us being generally still at an early stage of this industry. We have several states, you know, that we've only recently launched. Um, there are things like right now Illinois uh, has, you know, the governor has temporarily suspended a requirement to register in person at a casino. That has taken Illinois from you know, barely a, a market that registers for us to our second largest market behind New Jersey and our fastest growing. So a pretty big deal whether that continues to be extended for, for several months and that could have a significant impact on our customer acquisition and therefore on our revenue for next year. Um, so it's really a function of just some of those types of variables and just, you know, being so new in so many states and um, not having, you know, the confidence and the precision yet to be able to pinpoint a tighter range. Great, Jason. If I could just ask one follow-up. As it pertains to uh, your customer acquisition, you know, one, one thing that I think has, has stood out with you guys uh, relative to peers has been has been kind of your aggressiveness towards the higher end, more VIP type of, of, of sports betting customers specifically. Have you seen any of your competitors start to change their strategy at all around kind of seeking that type of action or those types of players, especially in, in some of the newer markets like in Illinois, for example? Uh, you know, I think right now um, we're seeing a pretty competitive market overall, and that includes, you know, the VIP uh, higher-end segment of customers. I appreciate you saying that we're doing a good job there. I think a lot of that comes from very, having very strong analytics and, you know, discipline around um, using that data to make determinations on where we invest and where we don't. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily think we're being that much more aggressive than any competitors. Um, I think we're just, you know, hopefully being a little bit smarter about where we, we choose to push and where we don't. And, you know, as we get more data, we should get better and better at that. And we feel like time is our friend and we should be able to widen that, much the same as we feel like we should be able to continually put distance between ourselves and the competitors on the actual experience we can give those customers once they, they do join the platform. Great. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this does include the Q&A portion of today's conference. I'd like to turn the call back to Jason Robbins for any closing remarks. Thank you all for joining us on today's call. We really appreciate your insightful questions and look forward to continuing our conversations with you. At DraftKings, we are excited about the future. We continue to build the quintessential sports brand and align with well-known media organizations such as ESPN and Turner Sports, as well as many major professional sports leagues and iconic franchises. We are well-positioned with a strong debt-free balance sheet to capitalize on unique customer acquisition opportunities, enter new states as soon as practicable, drive continued product innovation to stay ahead of the competition, and explore opportunistic and accretive M&A. I hope all of you stay safe and well, and we look forward to speaking with everyone again soon. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's presentation. You may now disconnect and have a wonderful day.